Travel is transformative and can be a catalyst to explore an interest, write a book, or even move abroad. From trips to Ethiopia and North Korea, the latter which inspired a book, one traveler has a wealth of travel advice for the solo traveler. The island nation of Malta has been a melting pot of cultures for ages and home to some of the world's most treasured antiquities. Valletta is just a museum itself. Walking around, there's beautiful buildings. A trip to Mexico became the springboard for an attorney-turned-award-winning author to leave a life behind in the States and inspire others. I think you have to be willing to understand and see the Mexican culture. The Caribbean island of Barbados stands out from its neighbors because of its special history. Will solo travel, visit Malta, see Mexico through an expat's eyes, explore Barbados' history in Texas two-step to Galveston and Big Ben just to head on World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. The Caribbean island of Barbados stands out from its neighbors because of its special history. Standing at the crossroads of Africa, Europe, North and South America, this small island has been part of the world's global trading system for centuries. In spite of its colonization by English explorers, Barbados was never a crown colony. We'll explore the unique history of Barbados with the help of Dr. Carl Watson a bit later in the show. Also coming up on today's World Footprints Radio Show, a few margaritas and a desire for something new inspired award-winning author Carol Murchison and her husband to leave their life behind in Pennsylvania and move to Mexico. We'll talk to Carol about her misadventures as an expat in Mexico that she chronicles in her new book, This is Mexico, Tales of Culture and Other Complications. The island nation of Malta has been a melting pot of cultures for centuries, and it's home to some of the world's most treasured antiquities and world heritage sites. But Malta also has a strong Christian legacy. As we'll hear from Michelle Buttigieg, it is the place where Paul the Apostle was shipwrecked. First, what would you do if you found a rat eating your toothbrush? Twice. Wendy Simmons is an intrepid traveler whose solo adventures have taken her from Ethiopia to North Korea and beyond. She joins us to share her wealth of travel advice and gives us a preview of her book about North Korea. We'll also find out about the battle with the rats for her toothbrush. Wendy, thank you for joining us. Sure, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. You're well-traveled and have visited 85 countries, I understand, so far, and you've got a lot to share. But first up, <laughs> we want to find out about a rat and your toothbrush. What's behind that story? And, Wendy, I have to tell you, that is this is the grossest thing I've ever heard of, the, the struggle between <laughs> a rat and your toothbrush. What, what's that about? Well, which time? <laughs> first oh. question. Personally, it's happened to me twice, if you can believe it. The lesson here is if you're traveling any place that's not a five-star hotel, I strongly recommend that you keep your toothbrush covered. <laughs> it turns out that they like the taste of the toothpaste. Mm. Yeah, I've heard stories from other folks where they've woken up to rats nibbling underneath their, their fingernails and such. I mean, very horrible things like that. But oh. never in a million years did I think that they would nibble on a toothbrush. And it happened to me once in Africa and then again in the Philippines. So, you know, it's sort of common sense when you're in some of these more remote places to keep your suitcases blocked and zippered and so forth so that bugs don't crawl in. But also it's, it's good sense to keep your toothbrush covered, even in a plastic bag. And, and certainly, I, I'm sure you threw the toothbrush 
away right after you or the tooth brushes away? <laughs> well, one would think that would be the smart thing to do. And the first time I had the sense to because I actually caught the rat munching on it. The Ugh. second time, unfortunately, I didn't realize it until it was too late. But that's another lesson for travelers. You know, you can try just about anything if you have the right attitude. So, wow. Um, but we'll move on. Yeah. <laughs> Dear Travel teaches you a lot of lessons. I never once really thought about the lesson that Wendy just taught us about covering our toothbrushes. All the times we've traveled to all sorts of destinations, generally we keep our toothbrush out. And you know how I feel about rodents. Yeah, uh, I do. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a very valuable lesson. Uh, but it's part of the travel experience, I suppose. You know, but it's it's a travel experience we can do without. <laughs> this is true. This is true. But I must say, when I was in Hong Kong one time and sleeping in a hostel, I saw a huge roach on the wall. But I was so tired, I didn't want to get up and move. <laughs> no, no. Speaking of attitudes, I mean, you actually travel like a travel journalist, but you're not. And you've traveled to some really unique places that a travel journalist like Ian and I would select. How how do you choose these destinations? How do you choose where to go? You know, people ask me that question all the time. And at this point, there's really no methodology. I spend a lot of time staring at the map. I've always been someone who loves maps and has been fascinated with world culture and I grew up in Washington, D.C. I think that contributed to it. I grew up in a neighborhood that was full of diplomats and folks from the World Bank. And so I've always been exposed to a much greater world beyond just, you know, my very own. And at this point, I'll just have a feeling about some place or it'll look interesting to me on the map. Or, you know, now more than ever, I just don't know anything about it. Or, it, you know, conversely, it'll be in the news all the time and as some place that's disparaged and I want to see it for myself because I think all too often we categorize places, oversimplify them as good or bad or friends or enemies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just don't look at the world that way. And so these days I, I think I gravitate to those places that I want to see with my own eyes what's going on. Right. And Ian and I can relate to that because a lot of the places that we go with World Footprints, we like to come back with true stories, places mm-hmm. that have been that major media have embellished conflict in and other places. And so we totally appreciate that. And you just returned from Ethiopia, another place that had been in the news not so long ago, and you were on a solo journey. Do you generally travel alone or do you travel with groups? Oh, not with groups ever. And more and more alone. In the past, I've traveled, you know, I had a, a lovely tradition with my mother and my sister for about 20 years where we would choose a country together and the three of us would travel um, to that country each summer. And that was something, you know, I, I was so privileged and lucky to do. Um, and But aside from that, I've always traveled alone, even, you know, during those years. It's something I just, I enjoy much more by myself. Mm-hmm. For me personally, I have a much richer and much more interesting experience on my own. Yeah, and the people that you tend to meet are amazing, and you wouldn't meet them otherwise, other than your solo experience. Oh, no question. People think traveling alone is lonely, and it could not be more opposite. Oftentimes, you know, part of the reason I love traveling alone is I like to come to myself to think and contemplate and, you know, do what I feel like doing. And, and you end up almost like a social butterfly in some of these countries where there's so many people who are interested in you and mm-hmm. who want to spend time with you that, you know, you're just very busy a lot of the times where you thought the opposite would happen. 
being on your own, I think you bring your own energy to a place. And whether you have a great time or the kind of experiences you have, it's, it's all on you. There's no other person influencing the way you spend your time, um, how long you linger. Whatever grabs your interest, you're free to follow. It's selfish in a way, but it's a privilege. Right. And not everyone, not everyone has the ability to do it for one reason or another. They're married or they have children or whatever the case. And, you know, I don't take lightly how lucky I am that I get to travel the world alone the way I do. Mm-hmm. Now, Wendy, you travel to a lot of places that are somewhat off the beaten path. And as a single traveler, as a female traveler, are there particular security precautions that you take? You know, again, I think this is another really big misconception, and I, I don't want to leave people astray and stay safe and, you know, and have people get out there and, and be harmed. You know, you have to be a smart traveler like you do any place. But I think women traveling alone don't have it any worse or better than a man traveling alone. And if anything, I think women traveling alone are often accorded, you know, greater privilege. People look out for you, and it's like anything anywhere in the world. Even walking down the streets of New York at night, you have to be aware and you have to be smart. And beyond that, I don't think you're at any greater risk as a a female. I really don't. If you're in a country where females are treated very differently, then yes, of course, you've got to take special precautions. You don't walk alone at night. You know, you follow the customs and the mores of any given country. Right. I mean, that's about it. Common sense prevails. That's the bottom line, really. Exactly. 100%. I would never discourage someone from traveling because they were a female alone. Right. That's ridiculous. Right. Now... As former travel agency owners, I love the fact that you're a very strong advocate for using travel agencies. What else do you do in your travel planning? What are some of the other things that you do to to plan your journey? It's funny. It's like a very big planner and a terrible planner at the same time, if that's possible. So, you know, I like to I like to be prepared in terms of what I have with me, but I don't like to know a lot about a country before I go. In fact, the less I know, the happier I am. I don't like to arrive anywhere with a lot of preconceived ideas and certainly not other people's opinions. And that's one reason why a really good travel consultant who knows you, who you work with often, can be a godsend. You know, the the labor of the logistics of planning the trip, especially someplace remote, can really take the fun out of a holiday before you even get there. And I have a full-time job, and I part-time job on the side and, you know, I'm a busy person and I don't want necessarily to spend untold hours trying to figure out a bus route through rural Ethiopia, for example, or how to get a permit. And if you've worked with a trusted travel consultant who really understands the kind of person you are and how you want to travel, that person can take such a weight off helping you to you know, figure out these types of logistical issues or create experiences for you or help put you in contact with people on the ground that would take you forever if you were going to find them at all otherwise. Mm-hmm. And as I said at the top, more importantly, it really allows me to arrive someplace with, you know, unfettered of other people's biases. And that just makes the entire thing from beginning to end an adventure. I feel like you're three years old. And that is not an easy feeling to have these days with the internet and ubiquity of everything and so to arrive someplace not knowing a thing is, is such a joy. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, in terms of preparing and planning, there's simple things I always do. I always have a medical kit with me. I make sure that I have all my travel documents in place and those kinds of simple things. This is World Footprints Radio. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. Tanya and I are speaking with traveler and author Wendy Simmons exploring solo travel for women as well as her trip to North Korea that inspired her to write a book. Now, when you've made 
your travel plans and you're mm-hmm. headed off to a destination and things don't work out the way that you had planned, how do you handle those challenges and setbacks? Well, you know, again, this for me, it's a, it's a mindset. I don't think anything's going to go according to plan. <laughs> so if I have no expectations. I make kind of light of that fact, but I mean it sincerely. If you set off for anything, hoping or believing that everything's going to go exactly the way you want it and day by day and you're going to see X number of things, you know, you're, you're in for a bruising. But the way I look at it is the entire trip is a gift. I'm so lucky to be going. And whatever comes is what's supposed to happen. You know, there's, I'm, I'm terrible with malapropisms, but there's some expression like the path is the path, or if you don't know where you're going, all roads lead there, you know, take your pick. But they all sort of make the same point, which is just to enjoy whatever comes. You know, I just missed the bull jumping ceremony in Ethiopia, and I gave it the college try to make it happen, but it, it, it was not to be. And you cannot let that sour the experience. You can't let logistical problems ruin your trip. So speaking of logistical problems, you actually just traveled to North Korea. You have written a book, which is due to come out next mm-hmm. year. What was that experience like? You know, what we know about North Korea is what we see in the news. Is that accurate or an embellishment? Oh, no, it's accurate. Oh, <laughs> it's very oh. accurate. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, I think the animosity that we feel to them is maybe a little bit misplaced because the people, it's not their fault. The people didn't like us. It's, it's really actually one of the few places I've ever been in the world where the population was openly hostile and made, but it's crazy as crazy comes. But even where in, in a sea of crazy, they're, they're, they're just people, you know, they're just people living their lives and, and having disappointments and joy and everything else. But it is truly, in terms of having gone to places that have greater poverty or equal poverty or, you know, all those kinds of things, it was no greater or worse than other places. But it was certainly the craziest place I've ever been, without question. And, you know, I think it was kind of the amalgamation of having the worst of many different kinds of experiences all in one that made it stand out for me. You know, did the poverty combined with the oppression combined with the craziness and your freedom of movement is completely restricted. You can't go outside by yourself. You can't go to the bathroom by yourself. The only thing, the only time you're allowed alone, at least in my experience, was when I was in my hotel room. Did you see that as an opportunity to be an ambassador for the United States or did you have that opportunity at all? Were you granted that opportunity? I don't mean to sound Pollyanna-ish, but I, I always look at when I travel abroad as an opportunity, not just as a, you know, American, but as a female, as a single person, you know, as a New Yorker, as everything I am and stand for, I certainly forced from us as an American. And, and, you know, and I'm conscious of that. Everything I do, people are thinking and making decisions about what Americans are. Mm-hmm. And for many of these people, this, I might be the first American and the only American they ever meet. So I take that responsibility really seriously. I, I really, really do. And in North Korea, that was the case as well. Not one person I met had not been taught from birth that Americans are bad. So anything I can do or could do to move the needle, you know, hopefully mm-hmm. I did. Even as Wendy traveled through North Korea, she never swayed too far away from the thought of being an ambassador, particularly as someone who grew up in D.C., spending a lot of time in the embassies and around that. She carried that with her as she traveled through North Korea. Mm-hmm. And I think 
think it was very important. I mean, it's something we should all carry with us when we travel to other countries. We are ambassadors for our countries, whether we come from the United States or a country in Europe or Africa, because people have perceptions of what people in other countries are like. By showing a sense of compassion, that really opens up the doors for other people, and it plants very important seeds. Now, I know that photography is one of your passions. Did you have opportunities to photograph, or, or were you restricted with that as well? It's both. You're quite restricted, not as much in Pyongyang, because the whole city has been orchestrated to you know, show its best. So they're, they're a little bit less restricted, although there's still a number of rules. But outside of Pyongyang... It's incredibly limited what you're allowed to take pictures of. That said, I was by myself. I didn't go with a group, and I didn't have a liaison. I just had the Korean liaison, my two guides, handlers, um, Mm -hmm. who were with me at all times. And we were together for quite a long time. I went for a little bit longer than I think most people do. And so we got very accustomed to one another, and they relaxed a little bit at different times. So I was able to sneak more pictures than I probably would have been otherwise. Mm-hmm. You know, they'd fall asleep and I would take pictures or I got kind of good at pretending and I was taking a picture of one thing and take some picture of something else. So I think I ended up getting a lot of moments that maybe were a little bit more genuine, a little more realistic view of life there than mm-hmm. what they would have had me take otherwise. With all of your travels, what has been the most transformative and inspiring journey that you've taken? Oh, gosh. That's so hard. You know, it's not a trip, you know, a total trip. It's usually an experience with a single person. Mm-hmm. Probably the most transformative, I have to say, was North Korea. Not necessarily for a positive reason, but it really did affect me. And it, that's why I wrote the book. You know, I came home from there confounded by the mix of emotions I felt. I, I'll say this. I've never been happier to come home. And I love traveling. There's nothing that makes me happier than being in other places, exploring the energy of meeting new people and something about it. You know, my entire life, as I said, from you know young age, I was surrounded by foreign cultures. I never want to come home. You know, once I'm home for a few days, I'm fine. I'm better. I'm back in my real life. But on the road, I never want to leave. And North Korea was a place I could not wait to leave. And so it took me, uh, you know, a lot of thinking to, to get to the bottom of why that was, because individual people, there was, I found goodness. You know, I found things I liked and the things I disliked weren't that similar from other places. And so from a, a transformative standpoint, it was a travel experience unlike any other I ever had. The positive ones are the moments you share with people when you show someone a picture of themselves and they've never seen themselves before. Somebody who's never seen a, met an American before or a child that you help or touch the window near their hand. And, you know, there's just those moments you have a hundred of them on every trip. And mm-hmm. you know, you're, I cry all the time. It's such an amazing, that's why I go. You know, that's the, that's the compelling reason to go. Wendy, what is the name of your, your book? It's called My Holiday in North Korea, The Funniest Worst Place on Earth, and it'll be out in May. Great. Wendy, thank you so much. We love talking to fellow travelers. Oh, thank you. We've appreciated the time with you. I love talking to you guys. Oh, I'm so grateful. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. To learn more about Wendy's travel experiences and her book, My Holiday in North Korea, The Funniest Worst Place on Earth, visit wendysimmons.com.
Big Bend National Park is in the Chihuahuan Desert, one of the largest desert regions in North America. It has more species of plants, birds, reptiles, butterflies, bats, ants, and, and you name it. It's, so it's a really unique region in that aspect. It's very remote. It's not near any big city, so its light pollution is very small. has one of the darkest skies in the continental United States. If you want to go ride horses or take a river trip, for most of the year you don't really have to make reservations that far in advance. There's a lot of activities that you can just show up and do. You don't have to get in line to go on the trail. We have a the classic National Park Lodge experience up in the high mountains, which many people don't know that Texas has mountains, and we have a, a mountain range in the National Park up to 8,000 feet. The island nation of Malta holds some of the world's most treasured antiquities, and centuries-old secrets are still being discovered there. Michelle Buttigieg tells us that Malta has been a melting pot of cultures for ages, and its Christian legacy runs deep. Michelle, welcome to World Footprints. Thank you for having me. Malta sounds like such a beautiful place. Where exactly is it located, and how does one get there? Well, Malta is located in the middle of the Mediterranean. It's um, about 60 miles off the shores of Sicily. So we're right in the middle of the Mediterranean. Getting to Malta from, from North America, well, there are no direct flights yet, but you'll find that Air Malta co-chairs with many airlines, including Air Canada, and you can connect through any major hubs like Germany, England, France. It depends what airline you take. In reading about Malta, you know, the history, there's so much there. I read that the extinction of dwarf hippos and elephants, and I can't imagine those on your island, but those animals were linked to the earliest arrival of humans on Malta. Who were these indigenous people? Yes, in Malta, we, we, we boast of 7,000 years of history. We're very proud that we have still megalithic temples on the island. They're UNESCO sites, one of which is the Hypogeum, which is a subterranean megalithic temple. Up till now, they don't even know what civilization used to live there. So it's very, very important in the world's history. On the island of Gozo, um, you can also find a megalithic temple there called the Gigantia, which is still erect. Really huge pieces of stone that are still standing. So there's a there's really big significance in, in actually the world history mm. um, on these small islands. Now, Malta's history is very rich, and the island has been shaped by a succession of ruling powers from the Phoenicians, Romans and Moors to Spain, France, and Britain. What are some of the predominant influences these various empires of sorts have had on the architecture, food, and traditions that are on the island today? Yes, I mean, it's, very, it's still very evident, especially in the architecture. If you look around, you see from Baroque to anyone that really visited us or stayed with us for a while. The most prominent one, I would say, were the Knights of St. John, the Knights of Malta. They came over to the islands in the 1500s, and they've built most of the infrastructure that still stands like the, the UNESCO site of the city of Valletta. 
Even the influences that they left, and you can still see it in our names. Our last names, some are German, some are Italian, some are Spanish, Portuguese. It depends all these royal families that came down, or, or these families, the Knights families that came down to Malta. Now, you mentioned most Maltese speak English, but I know there is a section of the population that also speak Maltese. I've never heard a Maltese word spoken. What what are the origins of the Maltese language, and can you give us a sample? Sure. The Maltese language is a Semitic language, so it's derived from Aramaic, Arabic, and with a very good mix of, of Latin in it. So it's melodic. It's written in Roman letters. Again, it sounds very Semitic, but it has the romance of the Latin uh, language in it. We say merhaba, that means welcome, or grazie, which means thank you. And that sounds very Italian to me. Yes, yes. So merhaba sounds very a little bit more Arabic. Grazie is uh, a little bit more Italian. Mm -hmm. So again, it's the influences that are around us, but we do have a unique language for such a small country. We're very proud of our language. Now, Michelle, you've mentioned a few iconic landmarks. What are some of the must-sees for the first-time visitor to Malta? Apart from the megalithic temples, obviously the hypogeum that I've already mentioned before, the subterranean megalithic temple, that one must get tickets about six months beforehand for. You have the Con Cathedral of St. John in Valletta, and Valletta is just a museum itself. Walking around, there's beautiful buildings, of course, dated back to the nights. You can walk down all the way to Valletta, visit the what was to be the Knights Hospitals. Today is the Mediterranean Conference Center. The beautiful halls used for big conferences, but you can still walk in and visit. And the bastions around Valletta are beautiful. There's still reenactments that are being done, the changing of the guards, the checking of the arms like the Knights used to do. All this information is on our Visit Malta website. There's a really great calendar there that one can use and see what is happening throughout the islands. The great thing about visiting the islands is there's always something going on. Mm -hmm. in, uh, in summer, you have the festivals. Every village it has a festival for the patron saint that is dedicated to. So there's fiestas, there's band, fireworks. Everyone goes out. It's a really, really cultural thing. But there's always something else going on, jazz festivals, not to Bianca, a Baroque festival in January, the fireworks festival in May. So there's always something going on. Year-round. All like. year-round. It's <laughs> all year-round destination, yeah. Mm -hmm. How would someone experience the island like you do as a local? What are some of the things that they should do to really immerse themselves as a local? If you visit, like, for example, during these festivals in, in the summer, you definitely feel like a local because everybody's outside and you really can experience the culture of how people live and celebrate and worship and all. Food is very important for us Maltese. Mm -hmm. we, we eat because we're happy. We eat because we're sad. So we eat. I think flavoring the local cuisine, which is Mediterranean, lots of fish, lots of pasta, lots of fresh vegetables. We do have also a really competitive now and very tasteful uh, wine selection. So I would say eat like the locals. 
take time to eat. You know, sit down and take time. Some really beautiful restaurants all around the islands. Take time to visit the sister island of Gozo and perhaps stay over for a while. Would that be considered kind of an off-the-beaten-path location? It is, yes, it is off-the-beaten-path. I mean, if you live in New York, it would be considered like the Hamptons for New York, uh-huh. where people go for the weekend. It's a more relaxed, there's, there's beautiful hotels, five-star hotels there, farmhouses that one can rent out and stay for a couple of days or for a week. It depends what kind of vacation you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Michelle, in our closing moments here, what is it that you love most about Malta, and what would you want our listeners to understand about your country? I think the best thing about our our islands, apart from being where they are and coming where we come from, is actually the people, the hospitality, being that we are a nation that had to welcome so many different people, I think is just embedded in our genes. So when you go to Malta, you're going to make a friend for life. And people are very welcoming in a a very sincere way, whether you're in a five-star hotel or just in a private villa or in your own apartment. You're going to meet people when you go out and interact with the locals. And the hospitality that you will get there is very sincere and genuine. And it makes your holiday even more memorable. Michelle Budigig, grazie. (laughs) Tashin, you're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) To plan your Malta adventure, go to visitmalta.com. A trip to Mexico, margaritas, and a desire for a new adventure became the springboard for an attorney-turned-award-winning author to leave a life behind in the States and inspire others to follow in her footsteps. Award-winning author Carol Murchison and her husband made the decision to move to Mexico from the States over a few margaritas. The experience led her to write This is Mexico, which chronicles her experiences as an expat living there, shed some light on her and her husband's decision to leave a life behind in the States and inspire others to follow in their footsteps. Just ahead on World Footprints Radio. Listening to World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Just ahead, we'll explore the special history of Barbados with Dr. Carl Watson. Barbados has been part of the world global trading system for centuries. In spite of its relationship with England, Barbados was never a crown colony. But in a moment, a trip to Mexico became the springboard for an attorney turned award winning author to leave a life behind in the States and inspire others to follow in her footsteps. A trip to Mexico became the springboard for a Philadelphia attorney and her husband in search of a different life. Award-winning author Carol Murchison and her husband made the decision to move to Mexico from the States over a few margaritas. And, as the story goes, the rest is history. Not only has Carol pursued her passion living in Mexico, but her experience led her to write This is Mexico, which chronicles her experience as an expat in Mexico, shed some light on her and her husband's decision to leave a life behind in the States, and inspires others to follow in their footsteps. 
Carroll. Welcome to World Footprints. Thank you for having me. Now, first, congratulations on the awards. Your book, This is Mexico, Tales of Culture and Other Complications, has earned you. Thank you. We got the impression from your book that your family's decision, yours and your husband's decision to move to Mexico, may have been somewhat impulsive that was made while drinking margaritas. (laughs) That is exactly right. You could consider the great advantage of margaritas or the disadvantage (laughs) of margaritas. But yes, we had been in Mexico and we had come to a point in our lives where we wanted to do something different. Mexico seemed like a good choice for us, and I will tell you that we've been here 10 years now. So I think it was. That must be that the margaritas were a good thing. Now, where exactly are you two living in Mexico? We live in San Miguel de Allende, which for those of your listeners who are not familiar with San Miguel, is kind of in what we think of as the highlands of Mexico. So we're in the high desert. 6,500 feet of altitude, so it has all that wonderful weather that that the high desert brings. You know, think like Tucson or Flagstaff, mm-hmm. cool in the morning, dry, warm in the day, and cool again in the evening. So just about perfect weather. The architecture is really unique for a high desert, high plains area, I would think. Yes, the reason for that is because the Spaniards, of course, conquered Mexico back in the 1500s, and this was one of the cities that they built on the Silver Route, and it is still today, particularly in the downtown historic area, very Spanish in architecture, actually very beautiful, cobblestone streets, the kinds of houses where there's a wall and you can't see what's behind it, and when you get that little peak, it's plants and fountains and really very, very lovely. Carol, what is it about Mexico that fostered your affinity? I think for me, it's actually the culture and the Mexican people. I have really come to love the kind of politeness, the civility, the family orientation of Mexican culture. It's very easy to live with that culture. Just as a follow-up, what kinds of misconceptions about Mexico have turned for you since living there? I think the major misconception I had was that I thought that probably Mexico was behind the United States. I knew that Mexico had a great deal of poverty, which is true. I think that I felt that someday, you know, it would be like Mexico would grow up and be like the United States. And that really is a misconception. In your book, This is Mexico, you're sharing some of your life's journey, but you also are telling part of Mexico's story. Why was it important to you to clarify some of those misconceptions, particularly those that we hold here in the United States about Mexico? In the process of writing the book and in researching, I came across this quote that there are no two countries that share a border that are more different than the United States and Mexico. You know, I don't know for a fact that that's 100% true, but it rings true for me. And what I felt was that as I started to write the book, I began to try to tell first my family and then my friends and then a broader audience that we don't understand Mexico and that we should understand Mexico. This is World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick, and we're exploring life in Mexico with award-winning author Carol Murchison. 
Alice Walker, author of The Color Purple, shares your love for Mexico, and she said that your book caused her to laugh out loud. <laughs> and it's refreshing, you know, when you can laugh at your own faux pas or make light of a challenging situation. What has been your most challenging adjustment to life in Mexico? Probably speaking Spanish. I think that's the area where I've had the most opportunity for tremendous mistakes. We've had the funniest mistakes mm-hmm. um, while speaking Spanish, and some of them are quite hilarious, where you, <laughs> where you know that the listener would love to just lie down and roll on the floor laughing, but they, you know, because of the politeness of the culture, they have to kind of look at you and smile. Those are the biggest mistakes. You know, a friend of ours, Sam Mayo, said that, oh. yes, she's been on our show a couple of times. Oh, I love her. She's a neighbor. She's from our neck of the woods. She said that your book, This is Mexico, offers many lessons about living south of the border. So what are some of the, other than the language, what are some of the lessons that you have learned about living in Mexico? Here's what I have learned personally to myself, because I lived in Philadelphia, as you mentioned, I was a lawyer, and uh, when I go back, I just spent a couple of months in Manhattan with my daughter, and I realize how much more patient that I have become living in Mexico, and really have kind of adopted a different view of life, what I would think of as the kind of manana uh, syndrome here, which which sometimes is frustrating for mm-hmm. us, mm-hmm. but almost always is the kind of thing where you can say, how important is this really? Well, that, that seems like it's similar to what islands call, you know, some of the Caribbean islands, island time, you know, it's Mexico's exactly. version of island time. Yes, exactly, because there's scarcity here, just as there are in the islands. Things do not always work in the kind of super efficient way that we are used to in the United States. And getting used to that, I think, has taught me that in lots of ways, that is better for us. There's less stress involved in that particular cultural phenomenon. Carol is a wonderful example of the type of person that we tend to gravitate to and the type of people that we want to be more like, the transitionists, the corporate transitionists. And she's also a great example of the transformative power of travel. Look what that one trip to Mexico did years ago and how it opened up her heart to a country that she now lives in. And honey, I have to ask, do you want to go out for some margaritas later? I don't know if I want to go out for any margaritas, uh, but, uh, you know, we had our share of tequila on our trip to Mexico, but I'd certainly be interested in going to Mexico again because it was a good time. Well, you know, we have been talking about moving abroad, and, and uh, if margaritas open the door to that, I uh, would be more than happy to treat you to a couple of glasses at our local Mexican restaurant. In your book, Carol, you talk about everyday life in Mexico. What is that like in San Miguel in particular? Well, this is a tremendously vibrant town. For example, today is a particularly busy day in this town because it is the fiesta day of 
San Miguel. And so this is a very big thing. It is said that there are 318 fiesta days in San Miguel, if it gives you any idea about the sense of celebration that happens here. And often it happens with fireworks and firecrackers and fiestas of all kinds. But dairy life is, for us, I work and so does my husband. I work on my creative projects, and I, I'm not quite recovered from being a lawyer, and so I do some of that as well. Mm-hmm. And we get up early, work, do our work, go to the library, maybe go to the movies, many of the kinds of things that we might do in the United States, but we do it in this really beautiful and uh, open culture. Carol, as we wrap with you, what considerations should one have before contemplating a move to Mexico? I think even if you don't come down here knowing a great deal about Mexican culture or language, you have to want to. You have to want to adapt. There are lots of reasons that people come down here, but I think ultimately the thing is that you have to be willing to see. You don't have to change who you are. You know, I'm still a gringa here, but I think you have to be willing to understand and see the Mexican culture. This is Mexico, Tales of Culture and Other Complications is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Books a Million. Carol, muchas gracias for joining us today. De nada. Have a wonderful weekend. For more on Carol's book, This is Mexico, and her blog, visit carolmurchison.com. Leah, if I were to visit Galveston, what would be the first chapter in my Galveston story? Well, I think that Galveston is such a interesting, charming historical destination. The first chapter would have to first start with looking at the past and all the wonderful Victorian architecture and stories um, that you find on the islands. Um, you know, a lot of what makes Galveston great is that the history is still living. Um, and you would have to explore, you know, our historic downtown district, Bishop's Palace, which was built in the early 1800s, and it's a wonderful historic mansion that you can tour daily. Um, looking at the fact that the island has been destroyed by hurricanes several times, but every single time the residents rebuild stronger and better, and it just makes it such a charming, patriotic place to visit. The Caribbean island of Barbados stands out from its neighbors because of its special history. Standing at the crossroads of Africa, Europe, North and South America, this small island has been part of the world's global trading system for centuries. In spite of its colonization by English explorers, Barbados was never a crown colony. We'll explore the unique history of Barbados with the help of Dr. Carl Watson. Dr. Watson, thank you for joining us today. Well, that's entirely my pleasure. Barbados is known as a Caribbean island that boasts sun-filled beaches, but it's much more than that, and the history of the island runs very deep. What distinguishes Barbados from some of the other Caribbean islands? Well, that's a very useful question and a very complex one, that you're perfectly correct. We are a singular island in many respects. We're a small island, only 21 miles by 14 across, but we actually have a very complex history and an incredible wealth of heritage. And the, the real secret to understanding the historical nature of Barbados and its importance over time lies in the axiom or mantra of real estate, location, location, location. And Barbados occupies an enviable location in terms of the Caribbean. 
We're the most easterly of the West Indian Islands, and we are at the crucial point or axis of lines of communication linking Europe, Africa, North and South America. Everything passes through Barbados, and so we became, in, in economic and trading terms, we became the hub of the Caribbean. In fact, if one were to go back to the 17th century, within what was to become the British Empire, there were three major port towns or cities within the entire Atlantic system. There was, of course, London and Britain. Then there was Boston in North America and Massachusetts and Bridgetown in Barbados. And the three of these port towns were key links within the entire North Atlantic trading system. So geography then made Barbados stand out in comparison to the other islands. And if I can add, our geography is interesting. As I pointed out, we are a small island, yet in many respects we're almost two islands in one. Because geographically and geologically, the West Coast, of Barbados and the east coast of Barbados are like chalk and cheese, day and night. Hmm. The west coast is characterized by very calm seas, beautiful golden pink sand beaches, and that's where the majority of the population is concentrated. Um, cliff terraces, because Barbados is a coral island. But on the other side, the east coast, the island faces the whole open Atlantic. There's Nothing between Barbados and Africa but the huge raging Atlantic Ocean. So the beaches on the other side of the island and the eastern side are very large, golden sand, and they stretch for miles. You can walk sometimes 10 miles on a beach and not see another human being. So it's, it's scenically very beautiful. Many people say there are actually two islands in one. Mm. Very interesting island. Now, tell us a little about the people of Barbados. As I understand, the West Indian people, Bayesian people, are pretty much the dominant people there today. But what about in the early history of the island, in, in terms of some of the early inhabitants? Who lived in Barbados? Yes. Well, Barbados, for a little over 4,000 years, had a small population of about 1,000 to 1,500 people of what in the United States are now called First Peoples, Native Americans. In the Caribbean, we use the term Amerindian. And these were Arawakan-speaking peoples who had come up through the islands, traveling on their canoes, and they'd colonized the various islands. They were succeeded by a, a subsequent but different group called Carib or Kalinavo people. In the 16th century, the Spanish mounted a series of slave raiding expeditions, and they, they ran through the islands. And because Barbados was Roman countryside, not enormous mountains where people could hide in mountain fastnesses, those Indians of Barbados who were not captured by the Spanish and taken to work in Cuba, Hispaniola, Puerto Rico, and Jamaica, enslaved peoples. Those Amerindians who survived fled and went to other neighboring islands. So that in the early 17th century, when the English colonized Barbados, they found no Native Americans on the island. Barbados had been stripped of its native population. 
in the very early period of our history, Barbados was essentially a majority white island. This was for the first 40 years of our history. And this was the, the tobacco phase of Barbados' history. But with the introduction of sugar, the entire demographic panorama of Barbados changed radically because sugar brought with it the slave trade and the introduction of many, many thousands of West Africans who had been captured in West Africa. So you have this massive influx then of West Africans into Barbados, and the entire demographic profile of Barbados changed, and then ultimately Barbados became a majority of black country. Today, if one looks at the rough percentages, about 90% of our population are of African descent, and then the other 10% are of European descent or mixed or Indian small groups of Chinese other ethnicities that have migrated to the island within the last 50 years. This is World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick, and we're learning about the history of Barbados with Dr. Carl Watson. So since independence in 1966, how has Barbados defined itself? How has it defined its new personality, its new culture? Yes, well, interestingly enough, although 1966 was our independence, it marked a continuum, and that 1966 was the culmination of a process that had actually begun in the 17th century. In 1651, Barbados separated very temporarily from England and declared itself independent of England. England, of course, with its military strength, reconquered the island. But in the Charter of Barbados, one of the interesting clauses of that charter, which was the, the Charter of Surrender of Barbados, was clause number three, which essentially states the following. There shall be no taxation without representation. Now, as Americans, does that sound very familiar to you? Living here in D.C.? Very familiar. Very familiar, yes. It was part of the, the 1776 revolt of what became the Republic of the United States of America. Taxation is feeling that Colonies are destined to become independent countries. And that when the mother country overtaxes the colonies too much and extracts too much wealth from them, then the colonized see no point in remaining a colony anymore and opt for independence. Mm-hmm. Do you know that even during the, the American Revolutionary period, there were many Barbadians who were trying to get the local internal government of Barbados or a local planted government to declare on the side of the revolting North American colonies and to become one with the United States of America. All that does is reflect the deep and profound relationships that have existed between our island and what was originally British North America and ultimately the United States of America. Mm -hmm. So everything then is a a continuum. And modern-day Barbados, we... With the independence, our independence was a, a, a range um, through a period process of consultation. We didn't actually go to war for our independence or fight battles to earn our independence. And we severed those colonial links. But bear in mind one thing. Barbados was never, ever a crown colony. We always had a degree of, of autonomy. So that, as I said, 
independence is then a natural progression of our island from one political state to another political state. Dr. Watson, you are a wealth of information, and I can tell you love Barbados. And I'd like to know in our closing moments what you want listeners to know about Barbados and what travelers, what perception travelers should have about the island that you love so much. Yeah, you are perfectly correct. I do love my island. And we welcome visitors. We're open. And it's very easy to get to meet Barbadians. I would recommend that any visitor, regardless of whether you come from the United States or not, come into Barbados, make contact with Barbadians. Immerse yourselves in our island. We have beautiful beaches, beautiful seas, but we have a rich heritage. We have a rich culture. Look at our star, our superstar, who besides the world now, Rihanna. Yes. Uh, so that's one example, but we have many other Rihannas and, and many other artists on our island. You know, we have a magnificent transport system on the island. For $2, you can get on a bus and travel the length and breadth of our island. Explore the island. See the differences. And by doing so, become friends with Barbados. One, I would close with one last point. If somewhere is worth visiting then people tend to come back to that place over and over and over again. And one of the key aspects of Barbados' tourism is the very high incidence that we have of repeat visitors. We have we, we call them Beijing Yankees. <laughs> you know, we have people from the United States who come to Barbados who let us on their on the fortieth or the fiftieth visit. And they're happy and every time somebody who came the other day on for fifty occasions came to the dinner where I played George Washington because George Washington was there in 1751. I'd, I'd play him at a, at a historic dinner with George and he said, my goodness, after 50 times of coming to your island, I only now discovered that George Washington was there. What a remarkable thing. And so they, these links, historical links and other links, bind us. For any American coming to Barbados, please come. You're going to be welcome. You'll be welcome with a brother or sister. You're going to be welcome with an insider. And let me tell you, my island is really a tremendous and fascinating island, and it's well worth a visit. And, Dr. Watson, with that, we can't wait to visit Barbados. Dr. Carl Watson, thank you so much for being with us today. I'm really grateful for you having me on your program, and my best wishes to everybody listening. To learn more about Barbados, its culture, and its history, go to visitbarbados.com. could turn on World Footprints Radio and experience a history lesson. We had Dr. Watson talking about Barbados, and I learned a heck of a lot more about Barbados than I ever knew, and certainly Michelle with Malta. I had no idea that there were even biblical uh, historic markers on, on that island. And I think one of the things about Malta that actually has me intrigued is just uh, all of the interesting 
places and buildings that are there that are actually UNESCO World Heritage Sites that are pretty significant places because uh, a lot of history took place on this small island. I mean, when we travel, we don't really think about how old a country is, and we're talking about very, very old countries, particularly Malta, with all of the influences from the Moors to the Portuguese, the Spanish, uh, French, English, you know, there was a melting pot of cultures on that island even early on in its history. With respect to Barbados, we saw very early on the impact of the Spanish and the Portuguese and later the English who actually came to settle uh, parts of Barbados uh, after those discoveries and uh, continued to have a significant role in the shape and form of the country. And it was interesting how Barbadians looked at their country as an independent country um, as part of their own DNA about how they viewed themselves as a nation even when they were uh, under British rule of, of sorts. Although they say they were really never subjects of the crown. This is true. This is true. And, you know, the other thing we got to enjoy today, you know, not only Michelle and Dr. Watson were evidently passionate about their, their countries, uh, but our other guests, Carol and Wendy, passionate about travel, and Carol actually very passionate about Mexico, so much so that it caused her and her husband to move there. And Wendy, you know, is very passionate about traveling to countries that aren't really explored, like Ethiopia, her North Korea trip, which is something I would love to do in the very near future. And, and trips that she did solo, which, you know, takes somewhat of a bit of, you know, a bit of, a bit of courage to do that. Right. Well, and who would have thought she'd be fighting off rats, too, in, in the bathroom with her toothbrush. But, you know, it just goes, again, to show the power of um, the transformative power of travel that travel has had on these ladies' lives. They have actually changed their careers a little bit. Wendy's still in the corporate world. She has an eyeglass uh, company. Uh, but Carol, and I think actually Carol practices law um, still in Mexico, but she's really left the field. It just goes to show you how travel can open up new possibilities and frontiers. And uh, Wendy and Carol discovered that writer that was uh, looking to come out, and uh, you know, and and that's all because of travel. Mm-hmm. Well, you all have that inner that inner author, that inner writer. We just need to really express ourselves and and the thing that opens us up to further expression is travel i mean travel is the broadest educational experience anyone could have in this world and you know it just opens up possibilities it helps us as carol found out it helps us accept other cultures It, it helps us develop patience which for me i think is still a work in progress Um, But it opens you up to other differences and helps us embrace other cultural and language differences. And and I have to give it to Carol that she had two challenges when she landed in, she and her husband landed in Mexico. There was a cultural uh, changes that she had to adjust to and the language barriers. And she's been successful at overcoming both. Yeah. So before we close out... I just want to share a quote that I found. He did not think of himself as a tourist. He was a traveler. From Paul Bowles. 
So ask yourself, are you a tourist or a traveler? We are Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick, and we look forward to sharing our next journey with you on World Footprints Radio. Thanks so much for joining us today. World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tonya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints Media, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award winning radio show can be heard around the globe on iHeartRadio, Stitcher, iTunes and more. Visit worldfootprints.com for a complete list. World Footprints Radio is a leading voice in socially responsible travel. At worldfootprints.com you'll find an archive of past broadcasts travel news, reviews, and information you can use to deepen your travel experience. Listen, learn, and live it at worldfootprints.com.